1: Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran
2: Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezik and this is episode 138. Yes. And uh, and right now we're in between uh, what, Christmas and, and New, New Year. Yep. And um, so a lot of the the major festivities are wrapped up or wrapping up. So uh, we wanted to do something a little bit different. We've, we've teased this idea before yep. and that was to do kind of like a best of thing. Some of our episodes early on while they got a lot of listens at the time, don't have nearly as many listens as some of our newer episodes do. No,
1: I'd say, you know, in the first 50 episodes, which we were still finding the format, when you look at how many listens we get now, we have a lot more listeners, a lot of new listeners that don't make it back 100 episodes. They just don't. It's a lot of content to work through. Yeah. And there's a couple episodes that we're very proud of that we feel should reach a
2: wider Mm -hmm. audience now that we have it. Yeah, so... So we have queued up two of our favorites that were fairly early on. I think one was episode number six. Was it six or seven? No, it was... it's,
1: they're. I think they're in the
2: 20s and 30s, okay. actually. Right. Yeah. Well, we, maybe we should have done that research beforehand, <laughs> but we're just winging it, so <laughs> here we are. But anyway, both of these episodes were really fairly early on in our tenure as podcast hosts, um, conversations that we were really excited about and uh, and think that if you haven't listened to them are worthwhile for you to listen to, and if you have listened to, to them already, it's worthwhile to revisit them and kind of – it's like when you watch a movie. Sometimes you you get that – like you the second, third time you watch, there's different things you pick out. There's different details you hear. Um, and then there's other things that just kind of reaffirm the first time you heard them as well.
1: Yeah, so uh, the first episode will be uh, Dr. Enrique Sala, mm-hmm. which was Meet the Nature of Nature, uh, which is episode 18. Mm-hmm. And the second episode will be Meet Homegrown National Park, where we get to uh, talk with uh, yeah. Dr. Douglas Tallamy. That was episode
2: 28. Yeah, and the, the episode 18 with Dr. Marek Salat, it was right when his book was released called The Nature of Nature. Mm-hmm. And it's really, I think it was right at the beginning of the pandemic when yeah. uh, when he, this book got released. And um, just really, even though he's not a native plant person per se, um, he just had a really unique perspective On how ecosystems work and how humans are affecting our ecosystem and how we need to work with nature and be a part of nature, not be at opposition with nature. So really just enlightening discussion uh, early on. It was the first episode to me where it
1: expanded my thinking beyond what's happening Mm -hmm. in our backyard or our state to really think globally, which I don't know that I really thought that extensively
2: about that before then. Mm -hmm. And then – uh, the second episode that we're going to air with uh, with Doctor Doug Tallamy, we tried to have a different conversation with him because so many people have read uh, "Bringing Nature Home" and "Nature's Best Hope," and then even the, what's it, the the Oak book that recently mm-hmm. came out. They've seen the presentations, they've gone to the talks, so we wanted to present something that was a little bit different not not necessarily a different side of Doctor mm-hmm. Tallamy, but just some different questions and things that maybe they hadn't heard him talk about before. So. Uh, Different kind of episodes for sure. We really love doing them, and um, think it's worthwhile for you to listen, take uh, your first listen, or listen to again. Yeah. And uh, and again, a lot of people have off this time of year. So uh, if you're looking for something to do with uh, while you're doing some housework, cooking, or, or getting ready for parties we have two here so it's an extra long episode so you can kind of use it to kill some time as well
1: so enjoy we hope you enjoy them as much as we did and uh, we will see you after the first of the year so yeah. happy holidays yeah. we have
2: a perfect perfect dad joke there friend this oh, is forward. like the ideal way no one likes this guy by the way but you say oh yeah and we'll see you next year and you didn't say it
1: no you, no, no. maybe at least i was going to end say with, it with in that. A, a dad it joke no. uh, <laughs> tone. tone <so. laughs> But we'll, uh, you know, happy new year, uh, and we'll be back. Our first buzz of the the year will be Tom and I are going to discuss. Uh, not in the last buzz, we talked about the top episodes of all time. We're going to talk about some of our favorite episodes that mm-hmm. didn't make that list. Yeah, exactly, so, and these are two of them. So
2: it goes without saying. So, all right. so let's kick into Doctor Enrique Sala.
0: You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pine Lands Nursery.
1: I have been waiting for this episode for a good month. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar.
2: And I'm Tom Knezik, and this is going to be a really special episode. Uh, today we're lifting up our heads a little bit, shifting our focus, a little bit different spot than we normally take you, and um, we're going to look at the grand scheme of things, not so much our local area, but what's going on on a global level. So uh, really, it's, that's how we grow.
1: It is. It's a, it's a little bit out of our comfort zone. Every episode, we, we typically tend to focus on what is native to us, uh, what is native in our little world. Sometimes it's New Jersey. Sometimes it's the Northeast. Sometimes it's, it's our country. But we're just a small part of that natural network in our world, and all these networks need to work together to keep our planet healthy. Um, the thing connecting us all together are our oceans, and that's one topic we have not really focused on. So today we're going to take things in that, that direction.
2: Yeah, and we are really, really fortunate to have a very special guest on today. Uh, not only is he one of National Geographic's explorers and residents, but he's a renowned marine biologist and ecologist. He's an academic-turned-activist, founding Pristine Seas and winning numerous awards, such as the Young Global Leader Award uh, and countless others. Um, but today, he's here to talk to us and, and you about his new book, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild. Dr. Sal, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and give us your bio.
3: Hello, uh, Fran and Tom. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. Oh, thank uh, you. My name, my, uh, I am Enrique Sala, a National Geographic Explorer in Residence. Um, I used to be an academic, and now I, as you said, I'm a conservationist full-time.
1: Uh, one of the things, or one of the quotes I love uh, is... I guess in reference to your decision to turn from academic to activist was you were tired of writing obituaries for the oceans.
3: Yeah. You know, I I used to be a professor at the University of California in San Diego, and I was studying the impacts of humans in the ocean, the impacts Mm -hmm. of fishing, global warming. And one day I realized that all I was doing was writing the obituary of the ocean, you know, rewriting it with more and more precision. So I felt like the doctor who's going to tell you how you're going to die <laughs> with excruciating detail, but not offering a cure. And of course, as you can imagine, that was not fulfilling. It was on the verge of being depressing. And I decided to quit academia and dedicate my life to try to bring back the health and richness of the ocean.
1: So I guess part of that, part of that step is the, the new book that you have written that will be coming out uh, very soon, uh, August 25th, I believe. And mm-hmm. Tom and I both love this book. I can't, I'm can't. i a slow reader, and I cannot believe how quickly I, I, I consume this book. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I, I feel that it does a fantastic job outlining what we know about nature, which in the grand scheme of things is a relatively small amount. And it applies it to where we are headed and why we need to fix it and Tom and I were both saying to do if, if you could give any novice person that wants to make a difference or learn about this any one book we had this discussion this would be the book we would want them to start out with um, because it looks at it as a global scale and how it affects everything not just our own little world so um, we know that the book was technically completed before the COVID-19 outbreak prompting you to go back and write one last chapter but after all your years of study why do you think now was the right time for this book why why was this why were you ready for this now
3: well first of all friend thank you so much for your nice word. you made my day <laughs> <laughs> no problem you know there is never a bad time i think to make the case for why nature is important but last year i felt it was the right time for me to write about it because i wanted to share the, you know, the main ideas i have learned i have been thinking about for 30 years uh, that I've been conducting scientific research. And also, it was the timing was good, in my opinion, because next year, in China, 196 countries are going to meet and agree on how much more space we are willing to give to nature. This is the conference of the parties of the UN convention on biodiversity. And the science is telling us that we need at least 30% of the planet protected by 2030. And this is the target that we are pushing with our friends of the of the campaign for nature.
1: And, and but, te- te- you know, te- technically, we need more than that, but that's a that's a compromise.
3: The science is telling us we need half of the planet in natural state,
4: mm-hmm.
3: half pl- land and sea. But thirty percent by twenty thirty, we think <laughs> is an ambitious enough a timeline. But still, even though the science is clear, you know, then people uh, are telling us, well. Um, You know, why do we need to protect more of nature? So I I wanted to show, by telling stories, how nature works. How is it possible that all these millions of species of plants and animals and microbes interact and make our world work, you know, Mm -hmm. make the earth a place where we can live and thrive? But then people ask, can we afford it, right?
2: mm
3: -hmm. So I make the economic case too. And the economic case is very clear. You know, we have a study that we released on one yeah. last uh, on 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 July eighth that showed that for every dollar we invest in protected areas, nature gives us five dollars back
2: wow. and that was one of the things I really loved about the book and was happy to see um, was that economic perspective because so many times when when we're talking about, oh you should probably install a pollinator meadow or, or you need to use more native plants. people think about it from. A business lens. And they're saying, well, oh, but it's so much more expensive and oh, I'm going to have to do all this maintenance on it. And they don't look at the the value over time and how much value they, they're they getting back and just the value of ecosystem services, whether it's pollinator benefits or cleaner water or just overall habitat or storm protection. Yeah.
1: So many things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know, I think it's really telling that, that you started off by saying it's you're going to discuss how much we're willing to give back to nature. And I, (laughs) I, which kind of leads me, I think as humans, we tend to think of ourselves as larger than nature, um, that it serves us. Uh, it, it, um, revolves around us instead of us being just a part of the balance of nature. Um, we've, we've kind of evolved to outthink many of our predators, including mother nature and disease. And do you think given today's atmosphere that the current pandemic is nature's way of, of rebalancing, um, as if our ecosystem's self-regulating through feedback loops.
3: I like the way you think. <laughs> uh, well, when the, you know when, when the pandemic happened, to me that was the loudest wake-up call. Okay. You know the, the the strongest reminder that we are all together in this, and that if we tamper with nature in one part of the world, now this can affect everybody's lives and, and the global economy. You know, as we have seen during this pandemic, the health and the well-being of the richest person of the planet or the, you know, head of a state, as we have seen recently, depends on the health of the poorest person in the poorest country. You know, we are all citizens of our, our biosphere, that living layer of the planet. And, and I'm very humbled, but what just happened? Yeah. So instead of going back to the pretense that we are masters of the universe, you know, you, you we need to be... Really humble, and we can send a rocket to Pluto and take photographs and make scientific measurements. But all our technology, sorry, hasn't been able to prevent a tiny virus from jumping from people to people and across borders. So, Mm -hmm. is this a way for Gaia, right, for that (laughs) global ecosystem, to self-regulate? Maybe you know. And and actually, I like to think that we conservationists are part of the immune system of Gaia. Mm-hmm. You, but yeah. but whatever it is, the fact is that we are not outside of nature and that we should do no more harm to it. Well,
1: I, I and you you make a good point. I think it's interesting that we spend billions of dollars at uh, looking at Mars as if w- if we need to flee and <laughs> and start life on another planet instead of investing in fixing where we're at right now. Um, I think that's pretty telling. So do you think given that situation that world leaders are ready to hear? Here that we would, need to dedicate
3: this land. I would think so. You know, when you think about this this report that we released in in July, tells us that if we want to protect thirty percent of the planet by twenty thirty, the annual cost would be one hundred and forty billion dollars. You'd think, wow, that's a lot of money. But wait, this is less than what we spend—that what the world spends in video games every year. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. It is ridiculous. So the money is there. We're just using it for frivolous things or, you know, the governments of the world subsidize activities that destroy nature mm-hmm. with five hundred billion dollars every year. So the money is there. We just use it or, or the citizens accept for governments to use this money to prop up industries of the past, pro- to prop up industries that destroy our life support system, which doesn't make any sense
1: well you, you know i i agree 100% and you know and and i think for for most people when they think of nature they tend to just think of their current surroundings or some place that they visit it um or that they interact mm-hmm. with but they don't look at it globally um and i think that's very telling as well that, like how how does each country's view differ like how does the destruction of our natural ecosystem whether it be Agricultural farming, uh, or 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 business related, how does that affect other countries, um, and vice versa, just in our biosphere?
3: Well, again, I think that this pandemic has made it very clear. And before, you know, let's remember there were other zoonotic diseases like SARS, yeah. Ebola, HIV. You know, you tamper with nature in one country, you eat wild animals in one country, or encroach upon pristine forests. And the consequences now, with our global life lifestyle, can stop the global economy. So this notion of um, America first, or my country first, yeah. is totally delusional. Yeah. You know, there can be no prosperity here if the rest of the world is in flames, and, and vice versa. You know, the, I, the International Monetary Fund estimates that the cost of the pandemic might be up to $9 trillion. Wow. You know? And, and and look at what what happened in the United States, right? Yeah. Um, not only in terms of loss of human life, but the economic downturn and the consequences that are going to last for for years. So you know, no country today is immune to what happens in the rest of the world.
1: I, I yeah, and and I think hopefully a lot of people are seeing that. One one of the things that I'm curious, I I I know. When dealing with this there's a lot of other factors at play and there's businesses who who tend or feel that they're going to lose a stake or lose traction uh by succeeding giving back nature um you know and we've definitely seen the size of certain national park land uh decrease in certain years but but you've done a really good job at showing scientifically how saving the ocean can create more revenue than overfishing it is it possible with with businesses and, and crop production and corporations to show the same type of economic growth by saving land, um, you know I think of companies that are that are doing good things like Starbucks with their cafe practices, um, with really investing uh, in good practices and good farming and and paying more for those things. Do you think other companies will follow suit, or do you think they're scared at this prospect?
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and you know, companies. I've been talking to corporate CEOs, and they say, you know, we will do the, the right thing, but we don't want to be the first movers, right? We want a, <laughs> a, a level playing field. Yeah. So it is the big companies, most of them, except the really evil ones. Yeah. That they they are, they are asking governments to set regulation, so then everybody has the same incentives to act, and they know that if they uh, do better for the environment actually is going to be better for their bottom line too and you know there is also a myth that you, know, you hear some people saying so many people that we need to cut more forests and convert more grasslands and fish more uh, in the ocean because we will need to feed 10 billion people very soon but the truth is that we already produce food for 10 billion people only that we waste a third of it mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Uh, so we don't need to destroy more more of nature to feed ourselves. What we need to do is to prevent this loss of food from the farm and from the ocean to the table.
1: When when we first started this podcast, it really started off. It, we were we were trying to connect
3: nonprofit
1: companies that are doing good work with with uh, local um, homeowners or people that just want to get involved to see what is being. Done that's really good out there and how they can get involved and it's kind of the more people we have on <laughs> the more we realize how much has been destroyed and how it's affecting everything and and the the overall theme has been loss of habitat um mm-hmm. it, you know it just keeps coming up and and the problems that that occurs uh you know we've talked about overpopulation of deer um i think a good example uh we were just saying um uh, there's areas of forest in New Jersey where deer were once 10 deer per per square mile that are now over 300 deer per square mile. Um, wow! And that pyramid shift has destroyed the shrub, shrub layer of our forest, destroying even more habitat and food sources and other species. Um, and you can't reproduce a new forest overnight. So have we gone too far? Like can can the result of overdeveloping be reversed? I know you, you, you discuss in your book how fisheries uh, that, that institute a no-take – rebound pretty quickly can we see the same thing Mm -hmm. on land is that possible
3: oh absolutely you know we could spend the entire hour talking about doom and gloom, right yeah Uh, and we know that uh, three quarters of the inhabited inhabitable land has been altered by human activities and that two thirds of the ocean have been affected by industrial fishing and so on and so forth but the good thing is that life and the ecosystems that uh, species form have this extraordinary capacity to regenerate and self-assemble in this complex ecosystem, even in the most unlikely places. And uh, if I may, I like to talk about an extreme case and yes. then a better a better way to do things. Okay. So everyone, you, you you will remember, and everyone in, my, in our generation will remember the explosion of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor in mm-hmm. 1986. Yes. Uh, this neighboring town of Pripyat, they had to evacuate people from there permanently. Uh, even if the pets had to be killed because they were spreading radiation. Wow. And then nature took over. You know, Now there are tourists going there. You've probably seen the stories on, mm-hmm. in the media. The yeah. buildings are crumbling, they are being conquered by shrubs and trees, and the city is now the territory of wolves. Mm-hmm. So apparently the, the built habitat, the cities that we build, cannot survive without the builders. Right? They, they just fall apart. So in a few thousand years maybe that town of Pripyat will look like the Mayan cities in the jungle when when they were first <laughs> rediscovered under yeah. you know the thick canopy of green but of course you know, this is not the ideal way of restoring nature but this shows that nature has this amazing ability to, to bounce back if we give her some space so we to if we want to see the return of the forest and the grasslands that you were mentioning yeah. you know we can start by removing all threats to a place right let's start by doing not doing no harm then we can replant the right type of species the native plants that uh, you you talk about and and but also we can help the ecosystem accelerate that process of self-assembly by rewilding meaning introducing first the native herbivores animals that eat different types of plants and create the conditions for other species to thrive and when the ecosystem is ready then we could reintroduce the predators and i love the example of yellowstone where 31 wolves were reintroduced Yellowstone National Park in 1995, 50 years after the last wolf there was killed. And the wolves started by controlling the numbers and the behavior of the elk, which then spent less time grazing and eating the, the small tree saplings. So the trees came back and with the trees, the entire ecosystem came back. So we can, we can do it. Nature has the ability, we just need to give her space.
2: Mm-hmm. We, I'm sorry, Tom, go ahead. Oh, I was going to probably take it in a different direction than Fran would have, but when you wrote about that in the book, one of the things you you mentioned was in um, in the United Kingdom how the last wolf had been killed. I think you wrote it was 1300. 1390 or something. Mm-hmm. Long time ago, yeah. long time before mm-hmm. anyone even probably knows relatives that were even uh, uh, trace their family trees back that far. But you started to talk about regenerative agriculture where um, we brought on on. Uh, um, That herbivore species that were a lot of times cattle or kinds of deer and then Mm -hmm. the the apex predator then became humans but using it as a food source and actually targeting Mm -hmm. those and then selling them either mail order at restaurants or supermarkets. Is that something that's scalable on a much larger level or is it something that is kind of like a smaller Uh, niche
1: because we we've actually talked about this in in new jersey when we talked about that deer problem with 300 deer per square mile and Mm -hmm. and it's not really feasible to reintroduce wolves in new jersey we'd love to see it yeah at least right now we'd love to see it but we don't think that's feasible but that doesn't mean we can't fix it um we just as as the apex predator we have to find better ways to control it um Mm -hmm. so that's what what we were curious what your thoughts on that were
3: yeah no no you, you're absolutely right it would be a little uh, tricky to reintroduce wolves in new jersey <laughs> <Yeah>. right now <laughs> yeah and uh, but you know about 300 deer per per uh, square acre or square kilometer it's it's crazy it's so it's too much right they, yeah. they will eat everything out so i think we can scale this what the, uh, tom the m- example you mentioned is this beautiful story of uh, a farm in england called nep K-N-E-P-P. And uh, if the listeners haven't read it yet, I really recommend this book by Isabella Tree. Uh, it's a real name, Isabella Tree. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And the book is Wilding. So it's a story of how they rewilded their farm. It used to be a farm like a, any other farm, bad soil, um, heavily dependent on pesticides and chemicals, and they couldn't compete with the large farms and in, in better soils. So they decided to abandon agriculture and rewild the place so they started by uh, removing trying to, uh, removing everything that was um, agricultural there and they replanted with wildflowers and within a year the insects came back the birds came back the predators of the birds came back and then they reintroduced species of herbivores that were similar or the same as, as the native ones so they reintroduced red deer fallow deer roe deer they introduced a species of cattle that is similar to the ancient cattle of europe the auroch and they reintroduced uh, they introduced one species of pig that is very similar to the to the wild boar and these species all eating on different plants and doing different things to the soil and to the vegetation they accelerated the return of that ecosystem and now it's like an African savanna in England, <laughs> mm-hmm. and people people are going there on safo- photo safaris to see <laughs> the nature that they, they have never seen in their lives. And this is an example of what can be done by just two people. Imagine if countries decided to restore grasslands, former grasslands that have been overgrazed by cattle it could
1: be it, we could see a miracle here oh our our midwest alone when you think of the 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 buffalo herds roaming that were were killed off and and that's all agri- agriculture crops now um mm-hmm. the amount of you know you 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 would have to fix that before you could get the buffalo back you know mm-hmm. it's they don't even have mm-hmm. the the amount of land that they need um but to see that happen would be extraordinary mm-hmm. <laughs> like more than who, it who who wouldn't want to go see that you know um I, one of the things that we did to prepare to talk to you, besides reading the book, was we watched your TED talk from about ten years ago, and a lot of the the things you talk about there are in your book as well. So, you know, one of the things that I loved is you didn't just say these are things we need; you actually give scientific fact and mm-hmm. and show you've been able to prove through pristine seas. Hey, if you if you protect the the oceans, um, you can be maybe more profitable between tourism and, and fishing would improve. You could catch more by fishing less. Um, at the time of your TED talk, you were thinking twenty percent of the ocean you would like to protect for biodiversity. Uh, given that oceans uh, create fifty percent of the oxygen we breathe, is that now now you're shooting for for thirty? What would what would be your goal for for both land and ocean? I don't know if you would have a different percent for for each. Like if you if if you had your way, if you were supreme leader for the day?
3: Oh, boy, I, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would be. The science is very clear. As uh, we have dozens of studies on land and in the sea that are telling us that we need. If we want to prevent a massive extinction of species and the collapse of our life support system, if we are to achieve the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, we need half of the planet. In natural state. This is what uh, my friend E.O. Wilson uh, calls Half Earth, okay. which is another fantastic book, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, E.O. Uh, e. e. e- e. Wilson, Okay. Half Earth. So, we at National Geographic, with our friends at the WIS Campaign for Nature, and now about 30 countries uh, and growing, are pushing for a target by 2030 under the UN Convention on Biodiversity of 30%. But this 30% is a minimum. It's a milestone to where we need to be.
1: You, one one of the questions that I had written that you actually was debunked as I finished your book <laughs> because you you covered it. Oh. I wrote it early on, you know, because I think of and I have to admit I'm a little ignorant of other cultures and other countries because I'm not as worldly traveled and and I tend to think that maybe certain countries, uh, maybe or or not even certain countries, certain cultures maybe don't rely as heavily on the scientific fact, uh, and it may be more spiritual. But you actually cover that and, and talk about how spiritual people are about nature mm-hmm. uh, and cultures are and what they've done to protect it. I think it was New Zealand uh, you mentioned um, mm-hmm. with with one perfect example there. Are, but are there cases worldwide where the, the science isn't necessarily met with open ears? Uh,
3: well, I think we... The three of us live in the United States right I was going to say, you can say it's American. <laughs> you, you can, yeah. <laughs> that would have yeah, been my so guess without, without yeah. going elsewhere. Yeah, you know, again, I, I'm, yes, there are countries where right now the leadership is anti-science and anti-common sense. Um, but you know, one good thing of this pandemic, again, is that all of a sudden, people became interested in, in data. And they wanted to see graphs and trends and science. Right. And, and who's the most popular man in the United States right now? Anthony Fauci. <laughs> yeah. You know, the infectious uh, disease expert. People, people, the public understand the, the power of science. And, you know, everybody is thinking of uh, you know, the time where we're going to have a vaccine. Well, where is the vaccine made? Not at the convention of a political party is made in scientific you know, laboratories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, without science, of course, the world wouldn't run. And and I think that most people understand, and most leaders understand. But uh, of course, there are still a few places where science is um, not convenient mm-hmm. for yeah. political purposes.
1: Yeah. Are are there countries that are that are ahead of the curve? Um, that are really doing an exemplary job of, of preserving nature or, or turning things yes, around. Yes,
3: absolutely. And, you know, the United States used to be a leader. Yeah. Uh, Yellowstone National Park, created in 1872, was the first national park in the world. The system of national parks that was created here was extraordinary, but now there are other countries that have uh, surpassed us. You have a little country in the Himalayas, Bhutan, it is in their constitution that 60% of the country has to be protected. Wow, wow, that's... The little country of Palau in Micronesia, they are a small island country, but they call themselves a large island nation. They have this year in January, they implemented a marine sanctuary that protects 80% of the waters. No Chile, another fishing country has protected fully protected from fishing a quarter of its uh, waters so there are countries both large and small that are showing leadership this is what gives me hope mm-hmm. actually
2: and then meanwhile here in the united states we're talking about selling off public land for, for <laughs> business deals <laughs> yeah, and for business deals those kind of things so which is alarming. yeah well <laughs> you know it, and- it is alarming <laughs>
1: Uh, and and you mentioned it in your book too how much space is needed for certain certain ecosystems mm-hmm. to survive um and it's you know it, it keeps getting more and more fragmented and more smaller and unfortunately as you mm-hmm. make it smaller it doesn't have the resources if it's fragmented for to support everything that's there they they can't really move uh or roam and that's that's what's alarming to us mm-hmm. it's that it's in a lot of i know in some cases it's getting better but in a lot of cases we see it declining um and that's tough for us um
2: as going back to the the global scale and looking at which countries are doing well and which countries might be doing poorly so we come go to that meeting in china uh, next year like you were talking about earlier and the whole world comes together and says hey this is what we need to do and then a year after that uh you mm-hmm. have the leader of the united states is saying, oh, We're not completely holding up our end of the bargain, but China is even further behind us and and France is even further behind them. So we're okay that we haven't held everything up. Who's going to hold everyone responsible and make sure that not only is one country making sure they're holding up their end of the bargain, but everyone is, is doing what they're supposed to do to make sure we reach that goal by 2030?
3: Yeah, this is exactly one of the problems with many international agreements, that they are not legally binding. They are, in most cases, uh, volunteer commitments. So the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity is the entity that is supposed to uh, set the agreements, set the targets, and monitor. But at the end of the day, it's every country that is responsible for protection within their own uh, territory, within, within their own borders. So we have seen it in the United States where President Trump decided that he didn't want the United States to be in the Paris Climate Agreement anymore. So he started the process to to withdraw, right? Yeah. So I hope that at the country level, the citizens are going to be the ones making sure that the governments deliver on their promises uh, by, in some cases, uh, voting, voting for the politicians that uh, uh, you know, fulfill their their values. Yeah. And also by making sure that if there is a uh, blatant violation of, uh, of this commitment, that people will make their voice made clear. And this is something that I think has been very positive this year, in the United States and around the world of people demonstrating for massively for for the things that they thought were right.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: we we have a voice in numbers and and everyone will have the opportunity uh in the coming year to to make that vote if that's what's passionate to them so uh yeah
3: well you know the, the first law of politics is is re-election <laughs> yeah right? yeah and and there is nothing that scares the politicians the most than um losing voters
1: yeah yeah, so I would imagine at any time, it's especially close to a, a re-election year. It's got to be difficult to to make drastic change or, or push drastic change um, through that way. I would imagine that's difficult unless it's something that everyone's behind and it's mm-hmm. it's a crowd pleaser. I you know I think protecting nature isn't necessarily always the the biggest crowd pleaser. I think mm-hmm. sometimes, unfortunately. Uh, but one thing. One thing that I realized in reading your book, um, and we deal with native plants and we deal with the land is the education for me with how little I personally know about our waters, um, and that's that's one of the things I really appreciate it. so and and I think, You know, going back to the land, bees are a great example of how little we know about nature, uh, much like the algae of of the oceans. And the work that Sam Drogi does at the National Bee Inventory really is cutting edge and he's just starting to scratch Mm -hmm. the surface about what we know about native bees and their importance. You know, And he had stressed to us that it made them realize how much they didn't know and how little data there was. What organisms of the ocean need that same type of study uh, right now to understand the health of our waters?
3: Well, the, the thing is that typically we don't know what's the importance of a species until we get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then we, yeah. see, we see things happen, right? Yeah. The, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, we uh, fur hunters got rid of the sea otters. Yeah. And then their favorite prey, the sea urchins, exploded and they ate all the kelp forest. And all the species that lived within the kelp forest went away. So you cannot know what the role of the sea order in the ecosystem is until you know, the, they, they are gone. And with millions of species of plants and animals and a trillion different types of microbes in the world, it, it's really impossible to know what the role of most of them is. And I, I like to use this example that is in the book, is something called Prochlorococcus, that's the scientific name of a, <laughs> of a bacteria. Okay. That is one of the smallest bacteria. It's only a millionth of a millimeter in size. Okay. It is so small that scientists didn't discover it until 1988. Yet, wow. this little bacterium is one of the most abundant creatures on the planet. You know, you're talking about 300 deer per hectare or per square kilometer. Uh, we are we have 20,000 of these bacteria in a single drop of seawater. And what do they do? They do they do photosynthesis like the mm-hmm. plants on the land, and they produce oxygen in, uh, in the process they actually produce the oxygen in every other breath we take wow wow and we didn't know about the existence of these bacteria until 1988 it's crazy I
1: mean, it's amazing i mean that's such a short period ago to learn something like that and it makes you wonder what we don't know what are we still going to discover mm-hmm. and say how do we how did we not know that
3: <laughs> exactly but what we know is that you know, the more abund- when, when it comes to assessing the health of an ecosystem, what we have learned, and I think we can extrapolate to this to most ecosystems, is that the more abundant the predators, the healthier the ecosystem is. Yeah. So if, if you can immediately know, uh, or no, at least we have been diving in places that range from pristine to totally degraded, and if we jump in the water, if you jump in the water and you see lots of sharks, that's a healthy place. Mm,
2: right. That's
3: what you want to see.
2: And that's similar to uh, some of the the uh, entomologists we've talked to in the past, where they said that, well, the sign of a healthy pollinator habitat is when you have a lot of dragonflies and, and ladybugs and things that are going to eat the pollinators in their yeah. larvae., yeah. it's having those predators. Mm-hmm. That's a really good sign that it's a healthy ecosystem, yeah, there you go. And it's you know it,
1: there's so many great examples in your book, just even of ecosystems. Tom and I both loved your analogy of New York City as a man-made ecosystem and how closely it relates to a, a natural ecosystem uh, and showing a form of human succession. And it made me think of so many sociology studies that I've seen um, that really kind of mimic natural ecosystems, but, you know, they don't quite get it right. Uh, I grew up in Levittown, Pennsylvania, which is which was at the time the largest plant community of its, of its day. And William Levitt, when he built it, there's five types of houses, um, and each development had it, only just one type of house, and, and as he walked away from it, he felt he's like, wow, this is my biggest failure. I've segregated classes, and and that's not what I want to do. So when he built his next Levittown, which is now Willingboro, New Jersey, he put all five homes in each development, and it ended up <laughs> turning out to be his biggest failure because it ended up just dropping the property value of all the houses to the, to the, the smaller of mm. the houses, and the city kind of declined. And even though they're just across the river from each other, they're really – Uh, economically in in much different places. So it's kind of like without studying it, he just tried to cheat succession by having all the grasses, shrubs, large canopy trees all at once. (laughs) Uh, And he kind of blurred the lines between symmetrical and asymmetrical boundaries. And I still think that these are things that we're still trying to learn, but nature just seems to already know them. So do you think that nature knows them. Do you think they inherently know them, or it was just a matter of evolution that's happened way before we even got here?
3: Uh, I think they evolved this way over time. You know, remember that when life started to appear on Earth, the environment was so poisonous that we and most creatures that live today couldn't live. You know, mm-hmm. It was cyanobacteria, like this Prochlorococcus, very small bacteria that started to produce uh, oxygen through photosynthesis. Okay. They were the first uh, plant-like um microbes that started to produce oxygen they started to fill the atmosphere with oxygen well that didn't go well for all these creatures that uh, for which <laughs> oxygen was poisonous but thanks to that we're here now so but what seems to be the rule over the history of life on our planet is, is the the growth of diversity and complexity it just gets more diverse and more complex except okay. of course during the five mass extinction but it seems that now we are also bent to destroy that richness and that diversity.
1: You know, e- even just recently, uh, I think as a nation, we're just starting to learn the role of invasives um, yeah. and 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 how how much damage they're causing for our forests and our land, yeah. um, and and that's just something that really has hit home in the last probably ten years. Mm-hmm. I'd say where they're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be growing burning bush, maybe we shouldn't be growing barberry. They're just starting to realize some of these issues. Um, it's is are exotic invasives an issue in our oceans as well?
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I grew up in the Mediterranean Sea. When I was a, a kid, I did not see a single invasive species. Okay. Now, the Mediterranean has 800 introduced species. Wow. Most of them coming from the Red Sea through the, through the Suez Canal. Wow. And I, I like to use this, this example. In 2008, some... Colleagues and I were doing surveys of the coast of Turkey, and you know, we had expected to see these seaweed forests; the, the bottom would be covered by by seaweed, and there was nothing there. It was a barren, uh, and we saw lots of, and lots of rabbit fish, introduced species from from the Red Sea. And these okay. rabbit fish they eat they eat algae. We thought, "Wow, well, mm-hmm. is this the cause? Are are these invasive fish able to turn an underwater forest into a into a desert?" Wow. And to prove that, we did an experiment. We placed cages, plastic cages, like uh, this plastic fencing for, for gardens. Okay. So we put plastic cages in, in some areas, areas where the, the rabbit fish could not ac- access the, the seafloor, right, where they could not graze. Okay. A- and it took only one month for the <laughs> native algae to boom, come back. Wow. So that yeah. shows... Two species of rabbit fish, two species of fish from the Red Sea, and these guys are not very big, but the biggest one is maybe a foot long, were able to turn the Eastern Mediterranean into an underwater desert. Wow.
1: wow. You know, just going off topic for a second, I'm sorry, I'm going to derail this for a second, because you, you brought up where you grew up. So one of the things that my fiance related to in your book, <laughs> my, my fiance was born in <laughs> Poland, and one of the things – on our first date, one of the things she she talked about was reminiscing about uh, foraging for mushrooms in the forest and having them cooked as soon as she got back, that it was something that her mom still does that her dad and grandfather taught her to do. And that was a large portion of her day every day. Her job was to go out and forage for mushrooms. So she was curious. She was saying she was taught – besides obviously visually being able to tell this one's poisonous and this isn't poisonous, she was told if she didn't know – to put the tip of her tongue on the gills, and if it tingled, it was poisonous, and if it didn't, it was okay. <laughs> and she was curious if if you had a similar similar story. <laughs>
3: <laughs> wow, no, I don't remember my father teaching me that. Well, no. I guess I guess we were a little less adventurous, okay, and uh, we stuck to the species of mushroom that we were that were known known to be poisonous, okay. And,
1: it might have been a little different time for her it was it was yeah no i i would not try
3: i would not try that myself (laughs) it
1: it doesn't sound like food was as abundant during those years so i could i could see why they
2: were a little more adventurous um so one one of the things i'll actually bring up is um another uh i think the people that you brought into nature are probably a little bit more important than the ones i've brought into nature but you really did a good job of putting that picture of when you've brought some of these uh, people in positions of power and uh, you gave them presentation and maybe it didn't have quite the effect you wanted, but when you showed them um, either you took them snorkeling or in the one case you you let them drive the little uh, robotic submarine, um, that's what really gave them the spark and said, oh, this is something that's really important and, uh, and we need to save. And, um, I've had those same instances even just with my now wife where when we were dating and we'd go and I'd just taken a hike and just say, oh, that's this. And this is this plant. And this is this way because the deer did this and that's why this invasive plant's here. And then she started to get it and things that she'd never seen before, it kind of opened her eyes and she realized how important it was to preserve them or change them or, or, uh, do take the necessary action, um, I guess where I'm getting with that is that's not available to everybody. You have, especially in the United States where uh, I just found out last week where I think it's like 70% of the country, or 70% of US citizens have never left the country, not even gone to Canada or Mexico. Um, A lot of them don't have access to nature, uh, especially if they're living in in urban environments. How do you convince them that preserving 30% of the planet is important
3: yeah it's not easy (laughs) and and uh, yeah you you know it you take somebody to a beautiful nature natural place and they have to be soulless heartless if they don't fall in love with the place right you take anybody to a redwood forest or diving on a pristine coral reef and what we have seen is that you take a leader to one of these places and the little kit, the little little uh, kid in them just comes back and you can see the, the eyes you know, uh, open, bright eyes and a smile and unfortunately they are busy people we cannot always bring them to the field with us and then we have to bring the field to them so we that's why we produce these videos and films, at the National Geographic to, to inspire them but when we're talking about something that is more abstract like 30% then for leaders what we are doing is uh using the economic argument because Mm. the minister of the environment he he, she will get it she'll say okay no i understand this place is incredible very important we need to protect it but then when they have a cabinet meeting the finance minister is going to ask but how much is going to cost
4: Mm. right yeah
3: (laughs) Um, and you know we have studies showing that the benefits outweigh the cost and that the initial investment is less than what we spend in activities that destroy nature so uh like it or not, we have to use the economic argument as one of mm-hmm. the main arguments with political leaders
1: yeah i just think how much more appreciative Tom and I would be if he took us diving with you <laughs> yeah we would that would that would be <laughs> a real eye opener oh, for us oh
3: <laughs> you only needed to
4: ask <laughs>
1: is is there cutting edge research that you're aware of that you're excited that that that's going to be coming out sooner or someone in the field that's that's working on something that you're really excited about
3: well the things that um i don't know i don't know um so but <laughs> <laughs> but um i don't know you know it's, what i love is to be surprised okay uh, oh. lo- looking at a uh, n- um, n- new story or opening up a scientific journal and seeing a a study that is like, wow, this is so cool. Or we really need that. Yeah. But but we have a, we have been working. Well, I know about the study that we are uh, doing, we are have a study in in review, in us in a scientific journal, okay. that shows that if we protected more than 30% of the ocean, actually, this would have t- triple benefits. It would help one to preserve marine life biodiversity that is unique and irreplaceable two it would boost fisheries catch globally and three it would help the ocean continue to store more carbon and help us to mitigate climate change so more protection can help us with food security and with uh, climate change mitigation
1: mm-hmm. if if you were, were sitting here and you had a skeptical business person uh, and you had their ear what's the greatest example that you could give them of of how it actually paid to have nature over business. If you had to convert a businessman right now, is there is there one example that that would knock their
3: socks off? Um, I think it's much easier to convince a country leader than a um, <laughs> corporate CEO. But no, there are great examples. For example, um, I read a story in the New York Times this year: the Empire State Building. Uh, the management of the empires the building, the owner, they decided to change all of the insulation of the building, including the windows. Okay. It cost them, um, mil- I don't remember how many millions of dollars, but they have been able to cut the energy consumption by 40%. Wow. Which means that every year they are sa- saving $4 million dollars mm-hmm. In, in energy bills alone,
1: which which pretty much pays for 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 what was just mm-hmm. done,
3: after a few years, yeah, it, yeah. it, yeah. Pay, it pays it pays off. It, it offset the, the cost. So that's a, that, that's an example, for, you know, talking about yeah. uh, oh, yeah. a real estate um, <laughs> business.
1: <laughs> Speaking of surprises, um, the foreword of your book is written by the Prince of Wales. Um, how did that happen?
3: Well, his Royal Highness is a committed conservationist okay he has warned about the destruction of the world of the natural world for decades and he's written eloquently about it he's published really beautiful books one uh, one of my favorites is one called harmony okay it, um, very eloquent very poetic but also based on, on science and and economic numbers so i asked him if he would write a foreword for a book uh, on an issue that he cares passionately about, and, and I'm honored that that he agreed to do so.
1: That is wonderful. We we were excited to see that. Yeah. That was <laughs> yeah. that was very yeah, when
2: cool. when Fran first <laughs> told me that um, we were going to have you on. He's like, yeah, and the, the Prince of Wales <laughs> wrote the foreword. Well, that doesn't make any sense. But then, as I started to look into it, it it did make a lot of sense. And it, I think it gives you a little bit more clout when you're bringing this book to the table, too. Yes
1: yes i agree and le- and like we said I, this is yeah. the, the one book that you know that we already hold in such high regards mm-hmm. like if we were to give you know we were saying all right if you were to give three books to someone and tell them to read we would want them to read yours first and then mm-hmm. you know we threw in the same company of bringing nature home by yeah. Doug Calame I, I, yeah, i'm and, not sure if
4: you're familiar oh uh, you
1: family, are so, so sweet that's you, <laughs> that's yeah. so kind of <laughs> you thank you so the, much and uh benjamin vote uh with his uh was it New, Garden, New Ethic? Garden You know, I think these are all books that people people need to read mm-hmm. uh, if, if they're concerned. Even if they're not concerned, they're eye-openers of what, what we need to know. So,
2: Tom, did you have well, something? Well, thank you. I feel flattered. Oh, no, thank you. So it, this is actually a question from my, my brother who uh, –
1: he's really disappointed he's yeah, not he's, in on this <laughs> Well, we this told podcast. him we were
2: doing this he really wanted to be a part of it steve steve <clears throat> g- g- travel steve yeah. is
1: worldly traveled he goes all over for diving he's
2: and- a, a avid uh spear fisherman and, and diver and um actually our, our whole family is, does some scuba diving my uncle's actually a scuba diving travel agent and he's going to the philippines and all over the world uh i would be surprised if he doesn't know who you are but um my brother's question was if he if he wanted to get involved with what you're doing and be your right hand man, what would he have to do to to take those steps? And I guess I'm even going to broaden that out and say, if people wanted to get involved, not just uh, helping hands-on, but monetarily, how can they get involved with the things you do?
5: Well,
3: I like I'm I'm liking this discussion. Okay.
5: Um,
3: <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. So there are many ways people can can help and you know when I was a a little kid growing up on the Mediterranean coast I wanted to be I was fascinated by the the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau by the French explorer mm-hmm. I wanted to be a diver on his on his boat and go around the world but I wrote him a letter and uh an assistant wrote back this very nice sorry but you know we have more demand than supply yeah and you know, but we appreciate your efforts. Good luck. Um, in the same way, you know, it's it's uh, when we do our work on expeditions, we go on ships, and of course the space is limited. But mm-hmm. there are things that people can do to help. And if it's not through our Pristine Seas project, and if you want to know more about our ocean conservation project, you can go to our website, pristinesis.org, pristinesis.org, okay. and, and learn more about what we do.
1: We're gonna um, we're gonna put that link when we publish this. We're gonna put that link and other links on our website so people can find all these mm, really wonderful. Quickly.
3: Thank you so much. I'm no problem. And but there are all the things that people can do in terms of monetary contributions. I think that in 2020, uh, one of the best ways to to use our money is to contribute to the campaign of the presidential candidate that you think
4: Mm
3: -hmm. is going more is is more is closer to to your values when it comes to the environment Mm -hmm. and i am doing that myself and i'm telling all my friends that this is the year this is a key year so that's a that's a good way to to put your voice and your money to work Mm -hmm. but also there is something that everybody can do every day yeah that would help and you guys are, I, it's, this is like preaching to the choir. I don't <laughs> yeah. know why why I, why I dare to say that in the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, but it's uh, having a plant-based diet, right? Yeah. yeah. Plant-based diet is good for you. It's good for the planet. It would reduce CO2 emissions enormously and it would reduce the footprint on our lands. It would allow us to restore much more of the, many more of the forest and the grasslands and the wetlands that we need for a healthy planet.
1: When when I think of our footprint, too, just based on our diets, um, I think of things like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch um, mm-hmm. and and all the disposable waste from 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 food that that doesn't need to be there. And that's you know, and it's things that those things were created inadvertently, not not purposefully. Um, mm-hmm. I don't even know if it. I guess it's fixable, but like who who owns up to something like that and says we'll we'll take care of that? patch that gar- garbage patch does does anyone claim uh any i shouldn't say responsibility i'm sure no one's going to claim responsibility for that but uh just that to vow to yeah. fix that they assert- going to take initiative yeah. in
2: in going to clean it up yeah there
3: is one private effort uh, trying to do that but the problem is that the garbage patches in international waters. Okay. It's beyond any country's jurisdictions. Of course, you know, it's the you know you can wash your hands. It's not my problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Even though we all contribute to it. But you know, we cannot remove that, that patch or any other five big ocean patches, but we can make them smaller. Yeah. You know, we, we can clean parts of the trash at the surface and that would reduce the risk of death for seabirds, sea turtles, marine mammals, which mm-hmm. would be great. But this is just a small part of all the plastic trash that is in the ocean. Yeah. You know, most of the trash is underwater, and very small. What do we call microplastics? And that's that's impossible to clean. At, at but at least, yes. yeah. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, But we can do the right things to reduce and hopefully stop you know, okay. the amount of plastic going in, into the environment
1: one of the things i appreciate at least that you know some of the companies they may not be able to control where that waste goes but like someone like corona i think they developed a um a can ring the the six-pack holder that's biodegradable and made of fish food <laughs> so if it does end up in the ocean, so it will biodegrade and, and hopefully feed fish at least it's people are thinking about how they can make a change mm-hmm. um instead of just saying it's out of their hands
3: yeah, no, that's very creative. I yeah. didn't know about that example. Yeah,
1: they're actually. I think I believe it was Corona, but they're pushing other companies to to take part in it. They don't want it to just be them. They mm-hmm. developed it in hopes that everyone would use it uh, to kind of reduce that, which I thought was very a, a great challenge, um, and it was nice to see. But I I know we've we're we're, we're getting close to the the end of our time. Of our time. So we always end our show with one final question, but we're going to change it And then it a up. final thought. And then a final thought, yeah. But we're going to change it up just a little bit for you. We typically, our, our, our final question is always, what is your favorite native plant? But we're going to change it up, and we're, we want to ask you what your favorite algae is and why.
3: I love this question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love
3: it. You know, usually people ask, especially kids, what's your favorite marine animal? but poor plants you are absolutely right i love it i love it that's the first time anybody has asked that
1: oh awesome
3: okay um well i was talking about that earlier today so probably um my favorite algae is the the giant kelp okay now the giant kelp why because the the giant kelp is is the redwood of the sea it's it's a plant is the largest big algae in the ocean so you can be diving you can be at 120 feet and there you have the base of the plant that reaches all the way up to the surface and these are the fastest growing plants one of the fastest growing plants on the planet almost a foot and a half a day wow, wow. so if you are very patient and have good lungs you probably can can see them grow <laughs> and and you know the beauty is that when the the giant kelps uh, reach the surface they continue to grow and they create a canopy atop the water mm-hmm. surface. So you are down there diving, you look up, and you see these, these plants g- growing to the surface like, like trees. And you can see the sunlight filter through the canopy as th- if through the stained glass of a cathedral. Wow. That's why I like the giant wow. kelp.
1: And, and if I remember correctly, you list that in your book as a foundation species. Am I correct? Correct. correct. So, yes, without, it, yeah, with the loss of that, that ecosystem declines.
3: All the species that depend on the plant for food and that live on the plant and the habitat it creates is like, you know, you remove all the trees in the forest and there is no habitat for the birds. Yeah.
1: That is a great pick. I love that pick. So, that's going to spark me to go do a little more research on mm-hmm. it and know more about that. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm taking away from this. So, we. After the last question, we always leave it open for a final thought. If there's anything you could say, if there's anything you want to promote, uh, as well as your book, if, if there's things that you just want to summarize or, or mention, you have the floor. It's,
3: it's all yours. Thank you. So I would just say that everything we need to survive depends on the work of other species right the every yeah. morsel of food we put in our mouths the clean water we drink the oxygen we breathe depends on all these 9 million species of plants and animals and since i'm in your podcast especially the plants which are at the base of all life on earth yeah <laughs> yeah um and um i think this is the time this pandemic is the loudest wake up call. If we don't change our ways now, when will we? Because I think that now everybody understands that if we don't change our broken relationship with nature, we are going to have another pandemic and then another, and, and the next might be worse than this one. So we do need to convince our leaders next year in China, in 2021, to agree to protect at least 30% of the planet by 2030 as one of the main things we have to do. We need to face off fossil fuels also, we need to change the way we produce food, but uh, protecting more of nature, giving nature more space is absolutely key. It's our, the best and cheapest uh, insurance policy for humanity.
1: and And you phrase it a great way in your book also when you talk about we're the only species that kind of cheats this by uh, accessing the necrosphere um and how we're kind of like stealing from one account to to pay the other account, mm-hmm. which I think is a great way to put it. I don't think a lot of people think of it in that way. It's just like oh this is we'll create more it's an abundant resource we'll be okay and uh it's 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 not mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's not um. Tom, you want to go next, or you want me to go?
2: Uh, I'll yeah, I'll go. Okay, oh, I think well, I'm you am gonna go last. <laughs> oh, okay. So, with uh, the the my brother's question, I thought started thinking about your answer and saying, well, you were saying when you were a little kid, you wrote a, li- a letter to Jacques Cousteau and uh, said, how can you be a part of that team? Well, I'm started thinking, well, what if there's a ten year old or a twelve year old out there who's listening to this or read your book, and they want to. Become what you become, because obviously you, even though Jacques Cousteau said, "Oh, there's more supply than demand." You can't you can't come <laughs> work with us. You started doing. You forged what your own you, way. you forged your own path and got there as well. What What advice would you give to that that uh, young teenager or, or kid to get and achieve what what you've uh, excuse me what you've achieved?
3: Yeah, we tell them. Make sure that you know what your passion is, what you're really passionate about. You know, Elizabeth Gilbert says that you know your what is the thing that when you are doing it, you don't you don't care about eating, sleeping, peeing. You know, it's just that thing that what you're the most passionate about. Um, and then, what you are good at.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: If you can combine both uh, into your job. You are going to be a very, very happy and fulfilled person.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Awesome! Thanks. Good. Awesome. Advice. Thank you. Is that your final? That was there? it. Yeah. Do I get to get deep for a second? I've been you getting can. deep yeah, a lot. Yeah, you can wow! Get wow. Very deep. <laughs> wow! You know, but i have been taking a lot of this really at heart, and I think, um, you know, even noticeably for me, once the pandemic hit and everything closes down, uh, my fiance and I pretty much every weekend have been hiking every weekend going to different destinations and being at one with nature and, you know, and I deal with nature for a living. And sometimes you kind of get disconnected from that. Um, and I kind of really feel this podcast has been, has awake, like it's awakened me. Um, and it, this is the best education I feel like I get every week. We learn something else that, mm-hmm. that, you know, y- you think, you know, but you don't really know. And it becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. And man, I, it just, it, it's it's like perfect timing uh, yeah. for me, and I I love where this is going, and I love the guests we have, and and I love that you came on today with us, uh, Doctor Sala, and this has been a, a wonderful experience for us. Um, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah.
3: No, Fran and Tom, thank you so much. It's been uh, I love your podcast, and thank I you. I am really honored to be here with you today. Well,
2: thank, thank you, you. too, thank and you. Uh, and thank you for everyone for listening today. We really hope you enjoyed listening, Doctor Sala. Uh, Please pick up a copy of his new book, um, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild. It's coming out on August 25th, uh, just a couple days. So make sure you pick up a copy. In fact, uh, just before the show, Fran and I decided we're going to give away two copies. Yeah. So first, you can enter by by joining our, our Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast Facebook group. And then on the... the um, uh, the The post post for this thank you friend on the post for this episode uh leave a comment about what you felt like what you thought about the episode things that you think you could do to help save the planet and uh and make sure you share that post as well the other way you can enter is by leaving a five-star review and also just letting us know what you you thought about the the episode um either on apple podcast or or podbean or wherever Mm -hmm. you can review the podcast Mm -hmm. because that goes a long way for us yes so And so, make yeah.
1: sure not only buy a copy for yourself, buy a copy for a friend, buy a copy for your local library. Yeah. Make sure it's accessible to anyone that needs yeah. to read this.
2: So, yeah. And um, I guess like we are saying, you can, you can follow Dr. Sala on Twitter uh, at Henri uh, underscore Sala and make sure to also national or follow national geographics, pristine seas, which is at uh, NG underscore pristine seas. Thank you everyone for listening to the native plants, healthy planet podcast presented by Pilons nursery.
1: We will make sure we have all those links on the website, too. So you can go there if you're looking for any of the links we talked about. uh, You'll be able to find them all there. You can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or you can just ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast.
2: Uh, I'd like to give – Give, I'm, I'm always screwing uh, up man, the ending. I was man, doing so well, too. <laughs> you were doing good. I was rooting so, for you. So I'd like to give a big thank you to Stephen Marr for contributing our theme music. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, which is at Pineland Nursery. Facebook is Pinelands Nursery NJ. Instagram is at Pineland Nursery. Uh, and don't forget, I've actually been really enjoying your your Instagram, Dr. Sal, as well. <laughs> a lot of good ocean pictures if you're into that. Um, so give that a follow as well. Or you can follow our YouTube account, which is Pineland Nursery. And uh, and like I mentioned before, don't forget about our Facebook group. We've had a lot of great conversations there, and they keep coming.
1: The conversations have been great. I, I'm really loving how active everyone's been recently, so keep it going.
2: Yeah, yeah. so thank you, everyone. I'm Tom.
1: And I am Fran. Uh, Dr. Sala, thank you again so much for being with us. Uh, thanks again, everyone. We will see everyone on the next episode. Until then, keep it native.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery.
1: You know that feeling you kind of get in your gut right before, uh, like the night before a, a big holiday or a big event? That's that's me right now. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar.
2: I'm Tom Knezic, and uh, Fran, I feel that way too. When we started, this was one of our goals, and we're achieving one of our goals right now. Yeah. So, but because of that, I got to really keep you on topic today. We can't we can't wander off. We can't go on these long like Fran about yeah, Fran, Fran tangents tangents. about cheese steaks or pizza. We got to keep it on on plants.
1: All right, I I completely agree, completely agree. So, I thought I'd mention my new guilty Netflix pleasure,
2: but you can't, but Not. only because I'm gonna mention mine because uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> right. really it kind of ties into a little All bit right. today. Awesome. Um, I've been watching on Netflix a, a show called Somebody Feed Phil, and it's actually a, I don't remember the guy's last name. His name's Phil. He is the writer of Every, Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, if you're looking for something that's like just really feel good, and there's it's like the the opposite of Anthony Bourdain, where he kind of like was really down and like showing the grimy part of things. Yeah, he's just sort of like everything's awesome, everything's great. He does little dances, enjoys everything, he eats. But that's kind of a digression from the main point. He was actually one of the episodes he was did in, was in Singapore. Okay, and I was really interested in it not so much because of the food, but because he's showing how they designed uh, a lot of their their city to tie into nature. Okay. and uh, even like the airport the main airport in singapore has a giant waterfall coming through like an oculus in the ceiling and it's like five stories of jungle that they've basically taken from the outside from around the city and brought it inside and uh, just they've really embraced this idea of biophilic design and incorporating nature and I've, and architecture i've actually together.
1: seen that on linkedin as well yeah so. yeah
2: it was it was pretty cool it's a really feel-good show but that episode in particular really had a message that was similar to ours and how we can incorporate ourselves in the nature. We're not two separate things. And, and even though it's
1: feel-good, you know, and I, I'd i like to think that we're a feel-good show, but yeah. that doesn't mean that there aren't issues that are pressing that need to get mm-hmm. taken care of or
2: or um, yeah. dealt with. Yeah. yeah. But with that, we want to keep this intro short, and I think we've, we've done it for once. First time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we want to get into it. We have a, a guest who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him a short one anyway. The author of Nature's Best Hope, and probably one of the books that just about everyone who's listening to this has read. If you haven't read it, you need to read it, is um, is Bringing Nature Home, Dr. Doug Tallamy welcome hello
5: yeah <laughs> Thanks. Great. great to be here
1: <laughs> thank you so much for coming on with us we really appreciate your time you know sure, one of the no problem one of the things i thought of immediately uh once i knew that you were going to come on with us you know and and i really feel that that you need no introduction and your work needs no introduction especially bringing nature home which to us being in the industry we thought that book was revolutionary because it 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 put everything in such a way that it was so understandable. Not mm-hmm. just for people in the in- it made people in the industry think differently, but it related to the average person that maybe was new to the topic. And um, it, we really saw a difference with p- how people, how passionate they got about this mm-hmm. cause, or, or or just taking notice to the cause. So, you know, and looking back, that was published 13 years ago. So, know, yeah. knowing how revolutionary to us that book was, how how has things changed when you look back? If you could take a time machine before you published that, and then back to today, in your mind, what's changed?
5: Uh, that's a that's a great question. Um, you'll notice that it was it was thirteen years since I before I wrote another book. Yeah, uh, because. Mm-hmm. I don't want to just write a book i want to write a book when i have something to say and uh but i think the time was was right now what has changed is the urgency for one thing you know we're still roaring down the road in the wrong direction and i i can see the start of a cultural shift um so you know we we're making progress but not fast enough and and what we're getting now are the headlines. Not from me, but from a lot of other people saying, hey, "Yeah, there really are issues." You know, we've got global insect decline. We've got three billion birds gone. We've got prediction of losing twenty million, or what is it, one million species in the next twenty years yeah. from the, the UN, and you know all these terrible things. And one thing that surprised me, particularly when the when the insect apocalypse headline came out, I didn't think anybody would care about that. I thought there'd be a lot of people saying, "Well, good riddance. We don't need them." Yeah. But I was wrong. I got emails right away. The public is concerned, uh, so I had already starting started ra- writing Nature's Best Hope, but um, but it showed me that you know, bringing nature home is not enough. We need we need more. We need plus when when I wrote Bringing Nature Home, we hadn't done the research yet. This was all based on mm-hmm. um, yeah, very uh, true. Past research and predictions, and uh, there was little doubt what I was going to find when we looked into it. But since then, we got a lot of NSF funding, we d- we've done a lot of research, so I wanted to get that out there as well. And we've also done research tying not just this is what happens to insects, but, but when you knock down the insects, this is what happens to birds, it's all tied together. So it was time for a, a serious update and a serious motivational push. So that's why I wrote it.
1: I think without with anything that's revolutionary there always needs to be a next step Mm -hmm. and i think that uh that is a a fantastic next step on on how anyone can be a part of it or how anyone can help and and i we we've mentioned this on a few podcasts you know before bringing nature home were we asking the right questions or did we even know what the questions were to ask Mm -hmm. i always think of uh uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with the answer forty two, and it's it's like, well, what was the question? Eh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, what was the question? You, you know, but I think your book created a lot of those right questions. Um, but even as we start to get things right, and we progress towards that, you know, we even when we had Doctor Sal on, we the one thing that I took away from that was his his urgency was evident, and even on a global scale, it was we need to do something now. And even as we make all the right steps, you keep getting further complications with nature. I know, in, in bringing nature home, you talked about chestnut blight and Dutch elm's disease and dogwood anthracnose. But just since then, now we've seen Asian longhorn beetle, we've seen emerald ash borer, spotted lanternfly, and 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 so many other pressing, which which they all seem to to accelerate <laughs> much faster than the one previous. How how have these new threats kind of reshaped our forests, and and what do they mean for for what we're trying to accomplish?
5: Well, they're devastating our, our forest. I'm not sure that it's happening faster. We we keep bringing things in, but yeah. if you if you look back, you don't look back because you weren't born. But you know, we wiped out the chestnut really really fast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We brought in brought in the chestnut blight, and that was the the first time we tried mail order catalog. So we had um, infected. Japanese chestnuts and we mailed them up and down the East Coast. So we effectively inoculate, inoculated the entire population of chestnuts within one year. Uh, so that that went fast. But we continued to do this. You know, we brought in spotted lantern fly so that we could have ornamental rocks from China. The eggs were on one of the ornamental rocks. Because, you know, we absolutely need ornamental rocks from China. There are no pretty <laughs> yeah. rocks in North America. <laughs> So, you know, so that's why it keeps happening. And then people come to me and say, well, I fix it. (laughs) You know, know, I'll fix it.
1: (laughs) One of the things we touched on in the last episode was that a lot of the times these things happen because people see a business opportunity, um, not really realizing what the impacts might be to that business opportunity. And it's an easy – it might be an easy product for them to sell. This is prettier. We can put it out there and it will attract people quicker and we can sell it. Yeah. There's a big, bigger picture, and and that's that's even something, you know. I'll touch on that. <laughs> I don't want to jump all over the place, but you know, we. I, I just saw today on LinkedIn a photo from Massachusetts of uh, the early or late 1800s dealing with gypsy moth and how devastating mm-hmm. that was, and that's obviously before our time, and and maybe you don't realize the scale in which that came through or Japanese beetle came through when that hit. Um, but I do remember, like, as a kid growing up in PA, fields of dogwoods that I don't really see anymore. Like, things keep changing. Like, mm-hmm. as a kid, I remember sugar maples in our area, and with climate change, we don't really see that anymore. Like, plants keep right. adapting and moving. And and you mentioned even in the absence of chestnut blade, uh, tulip poplar uh, become more prevalent. But maybe they don't have the same impact. So we— They we, don't. We, <laughs> no, and, and it's— uh, you know Cla- claudia west when we had her on kept saying we need to listen to plants we're not listening to the plants and what they're having to say and we've even That's good
5: i like that yeah, yeah and it's it's <laughs> very
1: true and it's we've noticed um in the nursery just in our own seed collection like we're having trouble collecting acorns for oak we're not mm-hmm. seeing that the 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 oaks aren't producing the same amount of, of mast and and they have their own uh bacterial leaf scorch and other issues um you know it is kind of published that sometimes nature has a way of saying to wildlife that it supports like hey i'm not going to produce any acorns cuz i need you to move on because i need to focus on reproducing <laughs> like it's <laughs> plants talking um how does yeah. how does what's happening how is that affecting we talk about the plants and us but how's that affecting our wild, our wildlife communities uh considering nut bearing trees are becoming less and less frequent um how's that well, having sorry, an impact know, on on all that
5: directly. Remember, plants are the only things capturing the energy from the sun and turning it into food. And, and all the animals on the planet depend on that food. So you got to get it from the plants. And if the plants don't make enough food or pass it on, the animals, there's no alternative. Yeah, you know, they, they, they don't go to the store and, and eat something. So every time we knock down the productivity of plants by eliminating the oaks or the chestnuts or simply having fewer plants uh, or bringing in a brand new disease and, and wiping something else out. Emerald ash borer taking out our ashes. It it devastates wildlife. There are ninety five species that depend on ashes. What are they going to do when the ashes disappear? They're gone. Yeah. You know, so so yeah. It's not a not a pretty picture, and that's that's just another reason we have to we have to act now.
1: And and with so many invasives, like in the Sourlands, I think they're predicting to lose ten thousand ash trees over the next ten years. You know, and those those open areas, even though there may be seed in the seed bank, and 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 you're thinning the forest and other things may be there, but it also gives the opportunity for more invasives to come exactly. in as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, you know, and then with invasives, you have you can have a rise. I would imagine of exotic insect invasions. You know, spotted lanternfly is doing so well because. They have tree of heaven. They have they have flora that they're familiar with. Um, do you think that some of these invasions are more prevalent because there's a there's flora here that they've adapted to, or do you think some of it's just lack of predators here? That you know maybe their their natural predator isn't here, so they have no no risk.
5: Yeah, um, it, it's a case by case basis, but undoubtedly their natural predators aren't here mostly the parasitoids and and diseases you know they're left behind in china or wherever they came from uh, and that gives them the competitive edge the reason the gypsy moth is so devastating is because a whole suite of parasitoids uh, that keep it in check i mean it's an outbreak species even in europe but it's much more in check than it is here um, didn't come with it uh, and that's true for all of them so that's that's the problem it's not that these are evil species it's that we're moving them out of the the um ecological conditions that keep them in check where they evolved uh so if we take our native species and move them someplace else like goldenrods in europe it's a serious invasive species they brought it over there as an ornamental and you know, now <laughs> europe's covered with with uh, i think it's solid
2: which is, isn't is surprising because you hear, uh, I think it was actually Claudia West, the talk I went to that I didn't fall asleep in. But I think she was saying how like some of the best American gardens you see are if you go to Europe. And how they're bringing, same way we bring stuff from Europe and Asia here, yeah. they're bringing yeah. stuff from abroad there as well.
1: And, and we know enough that even things like we know are – our native smooth cordgrass or bay grass to the east coast mm-hmm. is is actually mm-hmm. considered extremely aggressive if you take it to california and put it on the coast right. there it, it, it wants right. to take over or um we had marcus gray talking how in georgia they don't want Asclepias syriaca because yep. it's so aggressive that it 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 manages mm-hmm. to take over so i don't want to say invasive because it's it's native okay. but but the you know there even region per region you have those those obstacles yeah. which which i'm sure is is difficult but um
4: it's all true it, it's, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we you know and I, I i mentioned before we we went on air that we kind of feel like we're preaching to the choir most of the people that are listening to this have read your book or, or so forth and we're all big proponents of the message that you're spreading what what are some of the biggest obstacles that you've seen um taking the stance um do you get opposition? You know, as far as uh, to your theories, are there people that disagree, or, or someone saying no, that's not the right thing?
5: Yes, but not nearly to the degree I, where I thought there there would be. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I thought that the you know the horticulture trade would would uh, really be up in arms and and squash me. <laughs> but but uh, there's actually been very little pushback from, from horticulturists. I remember early on in, in a I gave us giving a talk at Penn State and there was a nurseryman sitting in the front row and his arms were folded and he's all growling. And I heard him whisper, You're trying to put us out of business. And you know, I was I was just getting into this. I, I didn't have a comeback for that until I was driving home and I said, wait a minute. There are 126 million homes in the US and if they all re-landscape, that's not going to put nurserymen out of business. It's mm-hmm. what what I'm asking you to do is change your inventory. So he's assuming nobody's gonna buy a native plant, which is not true. I mean, um, I, I, sales are, are going through the roof around the country. It's, yeah. it's simply a matter of, of realizing plants are more than decorations. Yes, they're decorations, but they do things. We've gotta add the what they do to the criteria of plants that we're using. Not only that, with climate change and with watershed management and, and all the other things that we have to do on our property, we need to use more plants. Yes. So this is not going to hurt the nursery industry, but there are a couple. Uh, there's, there's, uh, uh, well, there are a few botanists, actually just one, <laughs> uh, who um, you know just start questioning uh, the the uh, the logic behind trying to fight invasive plants because so often it seems like a losing battle. You know, you pull them out and then they come right back, or you, everybody invests a lot of money and then they come right back and finally saying well you know why are we doing this but this is a botanist who has never looked at what happens to other trophic levels there are excellent reasons why we're doing this i have an entire entire talk about our native plants or non-native plants bad you know he says oh you're not allowed to use the word bad because that's judgmental well i can measure whether it's good at something or bad at something and if it's bad at something enough times i call it bad you know it's not yeah. judgmental it's this is this is quantitative yeah. um but other than that, uh, there really has, hasn't been that much pushback, and partly because people try it, it works. It's it's you know it's second grade logic. Everything's got to eat. You got to give them what they eat, and to say no, you don't. You know that's, that doesn't make sense. And people get that. So yeah. Uh, but I did when I wrote when I wrote bringing nature home. I didn't think anybody would read it. So yeah, I was wrong <laughs> about that, and
1: that's and a it changed my surprise. life. But. Yeah, that's a wonderful <laughs> yeah. surprise. You know, it's yeah. you know I think. When, when you're thinking about invasives, that it's not just that the fact that they're here.
0: Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow and comment.
5: Some native plants, that is the problem it's the absence of native plants. Now, typically the presence of non-native plants means there is an absence, but um, so some people say you can have both together and if they're not invasive spreading out and biologically polluting everything, they're right, you can do that. So there is room for compromise, but it's the absence of the powerhouse native plants that drive the food webs that run our ecosystem. That's the critical point. If you make sure they're there, then the issues are are not gone, but but
1: certainly diminished and 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 knowledge is power. You know, you mentioned about thinking maybe there would be pushback from the nursery industry. And I think uh, you know, we've talked about this before also, is that sometimes just people are resistant to change. it's It's not yeah. the idea. it's their mm-hmm. livelihood, and they've always sold X amount of barberry right. and X amount yeah. of burning bush. Yeah, but if we educate the public, and the public doesn't ask for those things. Eventually, that nurseryman is going to have to change anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's instead right. of an issue, right. it should be an opportunity of of how many other wonderful opportunities this is creating for everyone. And that's
2: I yeah. just posted something on LinkedIn the other day where it's actually a comment on someone else's post, talking about how <clears throat> how some of these nurseries are in New Jersey specifically are still lining out bradford pear, and you still see it on some design plans that they want bradford pear. when all you have to do is look around in april and you can see how invasive it is and it just it drives me nuts but there must if there's demand for it then it's our issue that we haven't done enough education on why they shouldn't be doing it or why you shouldn't put that in your design and
1: and these are educated people as well it's not as if you know, it's sometimes I guess it could be what what they're taught at at the university level also. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it, you know, I'm, I'm sorry good I,
5: I generally don't support a lot of top down regulation, but that is one place we need it. Yeah. S-
6: yeah. S- S-
5: selling calorie pairs should be illegal. You know, but if we if we don't have the information or logic or 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 morality or ethics to say. Uh, no, I'm not going to destroy all my local ecosystems. I'm not going to sell this. Then we have to regulate it, and that's what the what the role of government is yeah. for—to yeah. to to do something for the greater good.
1: I think sometimes people don't see it as an issue in their area, so they don't believe that issue yeah. is real. Mm-hmm. Kind of like we've had this talk with coronavirus. People like early <laughs> yeah. on was yeah. like, "Well, I, I don't know anyone that has it, so I don't think right. it's that real." Yeah. Right. But <laughs> well, and I've
2: had the actually the same talk with uh, with Bradford Pair and Caler Pair and um. And uh, Japanese barberry, in particular, with certain nurture, And they're like, oh, yeah, but it's not invasive by me. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah know.
6: I'm not it, by it, me.
1: It, yeah,
2: <laughs> but it is by not me. Yet. Not yet. <laughs> but,
1: but this is a great segue because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, it is it time for us to finally put some of the sacred cows out to pasture, like growing invasive plants? You know, one of the things that we've discussed internally are just honeybees um, hmm. because they're not a native bee. And Do we really know when we – when we had Sam Drogi on, you know, one of the things that I took away from what he was saying was how little we really know just about our native bees, um, and they've really only oh, yeah. really started cataloging it, cataloging it recently. So you don't even know what information you've lost. Um, yep. So yep. you know, you look at people love honey, but that's not
2: and, and well, really, it's, it's a yeah. little bit
5: more than that because yeah. most of our crops are also non-native, and
2: mm-hmm. honeybees yeah.
5: are really good at, at <laughs> pollinating many of them we have underestimated how good native bees can be but it takes different types of management because they don't forage as far so you Mm -hmm. can't have miles and miles of monoculture and expect native bees to cover it um you know put the hedgerows back the way they used to be we could do this uh but um I don't think you're going to get very far trying to call for the the elimination of a (laughs) honeybee. No,
1: no, but but it's – But I see what you're saying. It's it's a good question to ask at least and at least be cognizant that maybe there's an issue with honeybees i'm, well, not, I'm not i'm not rallying against honeybees bees by any mean just they just, do
5: they do compete with each other i yeah. mean a lot of the guy the guy with the honey the honeybee colonies and i you know i sympathize with them because there's fewer every year but they say can i keep my bees in your field and I say well sure i'm not using it um well, the research is suggesting you—you've just outcompeted all your native bees in that field mm-hmm. <laughs> because the honeybees are going to take everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, you know, there are issues.
1: You, you know, one one thing um, that tends to be a topic on the the podcast a lot is, you know, we're talking about a lot of effects, and and I, I want to finish up with all the positive uh, about that, but you know, we talk about forest defragmentation. Um, a lot and how that affects uh with invasives and and everything else and even the population of uh wildlife and then you know the other thing is lack of predators which obviously you're not going to bring you're not going to reintroduce wolves back into new jersey or or or, or some of these urban mm-hmm. but how do you feel that has played its part like i know a lot of these things that the issues that we're up against you you can't go back it's we're not going to go back to 300 years ago um
5: well, you know, we've got more bears than we used to have. Mm-hmm. The coyotes here now. We do have potential deer predators, but and there's still open season on coyotes. They they will only take you know a fawn the first week or something. But that's something.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is they it an- should.
5: Is it enough? They sh- no, okay. it's not enough. But it's better than nothing. And <laughs> that's and true. The, you know the the uh, well, I mean, I can say that because a coyote got two two fawns on my property last year, and all I'm saying is great i mean <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I um,
5: my wife my wife does the lab hunters here and we've got way too many deer and if we can get any kind of natural control that's the way it used to be and but now we've, we still have open season on, on coyotes you can hunt them anytime they're considered vermin and they're the only top predators we have in most of the country so we're, we're not following just the most basic ecological rules you need every single trophic level action mm-hmm. active where you are so, of course, we have problems.
2: Go ahead, Tom. And, and it's a conversation we've had before with uh, with Dr. J. Kelly about deer management, specifically in New Jersey, but more throughout the Mid-Atlantic. And then we had um, Kip Adams from Quality Deer Management Association on. And um, I don't know if either of them actually said it, but one of the things that I took away from it is, and you hear a lot with the hunting community, is a lot of them say, well, I'm, I'm helping because I'm thinning the deer herd which then in, makes it a healthier deer herd because it's more balanced. But they also are very against coyotes. And like you said, there's open season on coyotes, even here in New Jersey. Um, you talk to hunters, they want to get rid of the coyotes, but the coyotes are helping. They're doing that same thing the hunters are doing. <laughs> so, yeah. so the hunters, yeah. effectively, they Do just they don't want why? competition I mean, for a while. I always um, hear,
5: oh, it's going they're going to eat my cat or something. Yeah, but, it,
2: a lot yeah. of it's, well, they're eating, what I hear is, oh, they're eating the deer, they're eating the fawns, and... Lessening than the Jeez. deer herd. But that's the goal at the same time, especially yeah. where we are in, in Burlington County, New Jersey, yeah. where we have 125 deer per square mile. And it should be right. 20. And, yeah, it should, yeah be. it should be 20. <laughs> should, it should be 12. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's uh, there's a little bit of conflicting stuff just with the hunting community there. That always, it irks me. I'm a part of that community. So it irks me when I hear friends and, and people I consider well um, in that same group saying things that really don't make a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm glad you brought well, that up.
5: It's so easy to move from logic in your argument to emotions in your
2: argument. Mm-hmm. We yes. do
5: that all the time. Oh, yes. And, and you know, good people, bad people, we all do it. So you just have to be careful. Try to stick yeah. to the facts, even though it can be hard.
1: I, I think we've, we've become too good at a topic. Being a top predator, and that's uh, we we've done a really good job at eliminating. You know, early on, if if weather was a problem, okay, we can build really good shelter. If if Uh, mm, wolves are a problem, we can we can eliminate that. But (laughs) you know, and then you have the cascade downward through those trophic levels because things are missing. So it's, uh, you know, I kind of feel like if we're going to be the top predator, we kind of have to act like the top predator in a lot of cases, you know, and and,
5: and... Well, we. This is why I say we're gardening the world. We have mm-hmm. to manage. We our, our footprint is everywhere, so we have to manage ecosystems everywhere. People say, "Let nature take its course." Okay, but we don't do that. You know, you can't <laughs> yeah, yeah. you can't interfere. <laughs> Ninety-five percent of the time, and then say, "Let nature take its course." That's what they say when we bring in these these crazy plants. Let nature take its course. It will work it out in about ten thousand years. Uh, when you know things adapt and things go extinct and 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 we go away, that'll all be fine. But we can't wait for that. So, if we're going to do these drastic, um, make these these drastic ecological perturbations, we then have to step in and manage.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: And we're not going to not interfere. That's just not in our nature. We're going to continue to interfere. Um, so, yeah, like hopefully we can interfere in a good way. Um, but it's it's nice that the research is being done and, and you realize some of this evolution that's happened where you can understand that how a monarch like over years of time have evolved to feed off milkweed, which I guess that – what were they just saying that spotted fly are – now oh,
2: they're, they're the, attracted to milk I think it's weed, common milkweed,
1: but it's killing them because they haven't evolved with it yeah, yeah. so yeah I guess that's a good a good interaction uh, for us right now but we've talked a lot of the impacts um, that have happened and your new book approaches what the next step is what do you think some of of the obstacles are going forward to achieve that next step?
5: Well, you know, the next step is really activating. It's it's a it's a grassroots movement that will require a lot of people. Yeah. Um, we are we have the audacity to say that we own the earth. So we I own this section of the earth. Okay, but along with that ownership comes the responsibility of being a steward mm-hmm. for that section of the earth. The fact that we we have have said, well, earth stewardship is just for tree huggers or it's for ecologists or conservation biologists. Everybody else has license to, to destroy it. Uh-uh, that doesn't work anymore. No. Everybody's got got to be an earth steward, particularly people who own the land. So I say, east of the Mississippi, 85.6% of the land is privately owned. If we all took care of just our private property, something that ought to be manageable, we're 85.6% done. So that's what the new book says. It says this is this is a this is basic earth stewardship that everybody has to do. And if you don't want to do it yourself, then you have to hire somebody to do it. Right now we hire we hire the lawn crew, the boat blow and go guys. Mm-hmm. And and so we're not opposed to hiring people. As a matter of fact, most people don't garden. They're too busy, they're doing this, they're doing that. So they hire somebody to take care of the earth. Okay, we just have to change the way we take care of it.
1: You know, it's funny. We we had Benjamin vote on uh, the podcast early on, and you know he'll he'll take it one step further and say we we have to stop putting ourselves above everything and instead be on the same level. We're no more valuable than anything else in that in that ecosystem. Which yeah. which I don't know that it's it's a great theory, but I don't know if you could get humans as a whole to mm-hmm. take that step backwards. <laughs>
5: Well, I, I doubt it because yeah. I bet if we could get inside the head of a lion or an elephant, they think they're the only species to. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> they're going to do everything that's best for them. It's just it's just the way we've survived this far. Um, but we're supposed to have superior intellect and be able to reason. Uh, that's another argument in, in my book is that we need to do these things for us. I'm not asking us to be altruistic here. But if we want to continue on this planet, we have to change the way we manage it or it's going to get us. So it's a selfish – it's a you know selfish perspective. Yes, it will save many other species. It will save functioning ecosystems. Nature will survive and that's all great. But we need that to happen for us.
1: And, and there are countries that are doing a much better job than we are Um as far as uh, conservation goes, uh, and that's one of the things Dr. Sala talked about with with some of these nations and their waterways, just protecting, you know. And sometimes we we tend to limit this conversation to land and, and right. not water, right. and water is such a huge part of that, um, you, you know. And we this isn't a political pocket and I don't mean this in a political way at all. But what are your thoughts about the Paris Climate uh, Accord? Uh, I know uh, Biden is saying that he would rejoin that. Um, Right. If, you know, if if things keep rolling in his direction.
5: Um, Well, rather than talk about that specific mechanism. What are my thoughts about about addressing climate change? OK. We better do it. (laughs) We (laughs) we better do it. If the Paris Accord is going to help us do that, then great. You know, when you get into the layers and layers of administrative um, regulations and everything, it loses me pretty fast. Yeah, Uh, to have all the nations agree on on an approach and work together—that that's got to be a good thing, I think. And to say, "Well, we're we're going to step out and do nothing," that can't be a good thing. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So, but the but we better do something, and other than or in addition to having meetings and talking about it, you know, we've been meeting about the climate since 1992 when we refused to go to Rio for the same reason. Um, It didn't match Bush's oil. Uh, you know yeah. interests. Uh, well, you know this is this is thirty years later, and we still aren't doing anything. So, talking about it is is a necessary step, but we need real regulation. We need to we need to subsidize, um, stop subsidizing the, the the oil industry, and subsidize clean energy until it gets up up and going. Um, and,
1: and that's that's always difficult because they have deep pockets. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. we once, and I'm not going to say any names, but we once, uh, or or even the location, we once supplied uh, plants for a, a pipeline that went in. They had to do some uh, mitigation for a pipeline that went through, and you know, it was a it was a large contract job, and and we had to get some money up front, and <laughs> we asked for a percentage, and they cut us a check for the entire amount. And their their comment was just make sure our weeds are ready when we ask for them. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and (laughs) yeah, what do you (laughs) got? You know, and it was you know we're we're grateful and thankful that those plants got planted to mitigate Mm -hmm. uh, that opportunity. But you're dealing with 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 a entity that has such deep pockets and such an interest. It's hard to combat that. Just. Through, not everyone wants to listen to the science, mm-hmm. and that's the the hardest. You know, I'm a believer in the science, but not everyone wants. Everyone
2: has their own personal interests, and sometimes the science doesn't back And right. before before Frank gets too far, I don't. i, I no, do not him getting the, any further. Than I don't him. want him to paint every every big no, corporation no, I'm in not. a bad light. Because actually, in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to have uh, the, the CWRP, the, yeah, Corporate cool. Wetland Restoration Partnership on. And there's some big, big companies who are part of this putting a lot of money uh, towards Especially in New Jersey it, yeah. that are yeah, they're joining together to fix some of these issues. And it's organizations that you might not think would be interested in doing those kind of things you're absolutely correct i wasn't
1: yeah. i'm not i'm not trying to villainize or or, or paint everyone i just in figured that it's light. a
2: good opportunity for me yeah. to plug a future episode but That's, no and these
1: are these are corporations that yeah. everyone's going to know the names oh, of yeah. these once they hear them and when you realize the amount of great work they're doing and mm-hmm. the money and time they're putting into restoring habitat and restoring this it's nice to know that you have those people on your side as mm-hmm.
4: well yeah
5: well, Sin- Sinclair Lewis once said years ago, obviously, and I'll get the quote wrong, but it was something like this: that uh, there is no man harder to convince of something uh, other, th- no man harder than the guy who's going to lose his job if you do convince him. So, yeah, and, 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 and
1: that, thats I, I, an issue. Yeah, I Good guess time. if I were in the same position, I, I would probably be having those same same thoughts. Sure, so, sure. so, but those are just some of the the real issue or the real obstacles that we have as as we move forward and not everyone's that way you know you obviously I, I just think in a lot of things it's it's really divided you know and, and it's just there's so many organizations one of the things we've talked about so many organizations working towards the same goal but just taking different avenues towards it it mm-hmm. would definitely be helpful if we all work together much like you're asking everyone to manage their own property in a way um, mm-hmm. for towards that mm-hmm. one common goal so we, we noticed there is a new website that accompanies Mm -hmm. the book and we were hoping you could talk a
5: little bit about that okay Uh, it's called homegrownnationalpark.com and I can take practically no credit for
2: it and I I will Uh, say that was as soon as this went live as soon as you put it up there we got it sent to us by at least 10 different people saying hey you need to check check this out (laughs) and we went on and it's like wow this is actually a really really good idea so sorry to oh, cut you that, off there that's good yeah
5: well i you know i did i did have the idea of homegrown national park years ago and i talked about it in my talks but first of course all, all i do is talk i don't do anything but i had um i remember sitting it was sitting in my my um, dining room early in the morning and i can't remember why but oh i know why i said what would happen if we cut the area of lawn in half we got 40 million acres of lawn that gives us 20 million acres well how big is 20 million acres so i started adding up the area of our major national parks uh you know yellowstone yosemite all the smoky mountains grand tetons all of them denali you put them together it's still less than 20 million acres i said gee we could create the biggest national park and if we do it at home we can call it homegrown national park and that's how i thought of it but but I gave a talk last year someplace and there was a woman, Michelle Alphandary in the audience. She's a marketer. And she said, uh, you know, you only talk to the choir. How are you going to get out beyond the choir? You need a website that's going to reach beyond the choir. And I said, yeah, but I'm not going to do that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she said, I'll do it. Wow. I said, I said, okay, but you know, I really don't have time to, to, to do this. And she said, I can't do it alone. I need you for advice, but I will take care of it. I said, who's going to pay for this? Oh, don't worry about that. You know, we'll find money. I said, Oh brother, I I am worried about it. But she's, so she's done it. She, she hired a, a, you know, web designer. And the big feature of this is to get on the map. There's a map of the U S and the object is you can say, I'm going to join homegrown national park. You put in your data where you are uh the amount of area that you're going to convert or already have uh planted natives in and then you're up on the map you're a little dot you can zero in on your your county and see how it works out so that people can see the the creation of homegrown national park you can see the connectivity build uh and she said that's going to create excitement and get people they'll want to do it just because their neighbor's doing it and everything else and I said, okay, (laughs) but I think, I think she's right. The map still isn't active yet. People are putting in their data, but it's not, um, we're having like our web designer took a vacation last week and I mean, (laughs) it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be up real soon. I'm still concerned about how we're going to pay for everything. But, um, but she says, this is, I said, when is it going to be over? She said, when we reach our 20 million acres. I said okay.
1: <laughs> That's a good goal. That's a yeah, good goal.
5: There you go. So um,
1: I mean, but it's really inspirational especially for for um home gardeners that are just starting out and and working towards this. We get asked a lot of questions um and and I think Claudia West said it best like don't be afraid to overplant. Just plant. Plants will find a way, you know, plant more. You can't go wrong if if, if you just keep planting. And I I've seen it on a personal level with my fiance who her her property backs up to a a bird sanctuary and and you would see the birds from afar but it was all exotic species in her yard and over the last year we've i've slowly you know taken some of those out and put i think we put in like eight shrubs Mm -hmm. and for for habitat and uh 12 herbaceous plants all native and you start seeing those birds coming in and the interactions and and the moths and the butterflies and now mm-hmm. now she's completely uh committed to going further Good. you know Good. and that's, that's 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 all we can ask of anyone is to give it a shot see what that interaction is it's easy you know do it do do i get raccoons in my trash yes <laughs> you know do i get do I get Yeah, but
5: that's that's a function of your trash. E- it's exactly. not a function of the native plants.
1: Mm-hmm. That that's right. That's right. I, I just think a lot of people think of the negativity of what what some of this brings um, instead of the positive aspects of that. Right. You know. And by
5: the way, we were talking about coyotes. That's another important reason to have it. We've got way mm-hmm. too many. We call them meso predators. Things like possums and coons. Um, that that they're devastating uh, birds and other things because typically they would have been controlled by wolves and, and coyotes and the, the topper, you know, the bigger predators that aren't here anymore. So that's one of the major benefits of having coyotes around. They keep those mesopredators down to reasonable numbers.
1: That's a great, so. that's, that's a great, uh, uh a great advantage of that actually.
2: Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. another example of, well, if, if we aren't going to have the coyotes to do it, then, we as humans have to do it, and right. there haven't been the people willing to do it. There's been a lot of will- people willing to complain about the yeah. issue <laughs> exactly. they don't actually want exactly. to go and yes. take yes. care of it. So,
1: yeah. so yeah. We're, we're, we're extremely – being in the industry, we're extremely uh, excited about the work that you're doing and that you've been doing. Uh, do you have any contemporaries doing work that you're excited about that maybe we're not aware of or, or should see the light of day that we just – we don't know about it, but we should?
5: Well, I think you do know about it. I mean, Sam Drogi's one. Yeah. 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 I, I I talk about bees, but I'm not a bee person. You know, I get all my information from from Sam and Jared Fowler and the other people that that have been working on uh, native bees for a long time. That's a huge. He's absolutely right. Out of the four thousand species of native bees we have, we know something about just a handful of them, and um, and that's a real a real issue. So there's that's a big area of, of research. I'm glad the whole country is excited about saving pollinators. They think they think the monarchs won. Um, yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's not. But that's okay. Um, so that would you know that I'm excited about about that push for sure. Is there? Um, I mean, I'm sorry. God, no, no. Please, please finish. No, I, I already forget what I was going to okay. say. <laughs> <laughs> is,
1: in, in your own research, is there any one finding that shocked you? In what you found, like the the one thing in your own research that you were most surprised to learn. As going through this throughout the years,
5: um, yeah, I will say this: this concept of keystone species that that I, I write about, the discovery that it's not just native plants; it's particular native plants that are doing most of the work. Uh, the discovery that it's it's not just insects; it's caterpillars that are really driving the the food web. So, if you really want to keep things together, you got to have a landscape that makes a lot of caterpillars. So it becomes much more specific. Um, How do you do that? Well, there's only 5% of our plants making 75% of the caterpillars, or 14% of our plants making 90% of them. Wow. Which means 85% of them aren't making very many. Now, some of them are good for pollinators, and we want all the diversity. That's great. But these are things that have to be in the landscape. Uh, And the degree to which the, the caterpillars and other insects that eat plants specialize has surprised me too, because for, for several decades, people have just guessed, well, it's about 90% are specialists, but they don't even know how to they're defining specialists. The, the most generalized caterpillar in the country is called the stock borer. And it, it uses something like 123 genera of plants. You say, well, that's a real generalist. I can use a lot of things, but that's still only, wherever it's found, it's still only 5% of the available plants Mm -hmm. that it could use, which means it's still highly specialized. (laughs) (laughs) So when you start bringing in plants from other countries, there's no way our insects can use them effectively. So it's not that what we found was a giant surprise. It's the degree to which um, these things are happening that has surprised us.
2: And uh, before... I want to kick it back to your website because in addition to the map, there's a, also a get started tab where you have a lot of this stuff listed. Just, well, there's, you have an article, 10 things to get you started. <laughs> so, and um, changing relationship with insects. What insects and plants should you use? And so that's just a resource that's not, I'm sure those that information's out there, but there's not a lot of places where you find it all on one, I not agree. even just one website, on one page. Um what are some of those you've m- mentioned a couple plants that are the real rock stars and keystone species uh and insects what are some of those plants and insects
5: Well it depends on where you are but um the the top one it's you know it's undeniably oaks in 84% of the counties of the US so wow. almost anywhere except in the you know the the um the upper parts of the pacific northwest when you get up into the very northern places where oaks drop out and the the conifers and willows mm-hmm. take over then they're not keystone plants but even in the dry areas of the southwest uh oaks are ruling the day in terms of of supporting the species that run our, our ecosystems um so there you go there's no other genus that comes close to them it's typically in most areas it's typically over 500 species that of caterpillars that the oaks wow. support and, and Um, nationwide it's 900 species 900 species of bird food so try to try to support the birds without that i mean it's it's going to be tough um in in terms of the the insect well then then you know native willows and native prunus are are tied for second in a lot of places it's really when you look around it's the plants that used to dominate particular areas as you go a little further north, the native birches are ranked very high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you go to the dry areas of the west, along the, the rivers, cottonwood, you know the, po- the populous cottonwood um, mm-hmm. yeah. is that's definitely a keystone plant. I mean, everything's going going to that. So it depends a little bit on on, on where you are, but um, the 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 most important caterpillars again, it depends on most important for, for which group that's eating them. But if you're talking about migrating birds and things, it's, it's the inchworms. It's the geometridae that come out early and they, um, they don't have hairs. They all taste good. You know, they're, they're con- carrying more energy from plants to birds than any other thing. Uh, and, and so when we sprayed for gypsy moth back in the seventies, there are places now people argue with me about this, but I can go to those places that that geometric population is still knocked down it has not recovered to what it was when i was a a, a boy i mean they were parachuting out of the trees we used to we used to camp all summer long and (laughs) that used to get my father they'd parachute down his back of his shirt and everything else i mean you don't you just don't see that anymore Um, and and so we've lost three billion birds why you know you take away what they eat of course I, it's I, not the only reason, but
1: I remember as a kid a ton of caterpillars and inchworms. Um, yeah, and I don't yeah. see and and I grew up in a suburban area, and now I live in a rural area, and I still don't see what I mm-hmm. saw as a kid, which is kind
2: of telling. Um, the, you you mentioned some pretty specific numbers, like based on counties. How how did right. you go and do <laughs> that research and figure all that out? That's actually pretty interesting. Yeah.
5: Well it's easy. I just tell tell Kimberly Shrupshire, my helper, to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> so what would, would you find like it, and and while you were talking it made me immediately appreciate even more uh the work that like Pinelands Preservation Alliance does in preserving uh the pine barrens with, with the amount of oaks in that forest. Um it are are those areas more rich because of like the amount of oaks and the amount of uh, insects it can host, does that make that area, I don't want to say better, uh, more unique, I guess.
5: Does it make it more productive? Yes, it does. Okay. It does. Um, I mean, that's just the way it is.
4: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. All right. So I, I know we're, we're, we're getting close to where we have to start wrapping up. I did get one listener message me and ask if he could ask a question and, and it was, it was, it's nothing outrageous. It's, so uh, <laughs> Richard McCoy from McCoy Horticultural, Horticultural uh, Associates, um, he he focuses on organic land care and, mm-hmm. and like a very eco-conscious uh, landscape contractor. And he was wondering if you had any uh, advice for for someone like him, his company, that's an ecological land care contractor, how they can best present the native plant philosophy to clients that maybe Boy. are unaware. And, and and we get that question a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you convince someone uh, that this yeah, is the way a, to go?
5: Yeah, it's a funny question because I think part of the problem is that the public trusts whoever they hire too much.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: You know, they they say, "Well, my landscaper won't do that." I said, "What do you mean? You're the boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you tell him what he's supposed to do." So, I, the the big problem is that we don't have enough people. What's his name, Richard? Richard, yes. Richard's out there. Everybody, every place I go, people want to hire somebody who's going to do what I say. And I, I don't know who they are. So if Richard's there, I, I should get his his um, contact information because I'm trying to keep a list of people I can I can recommend. Mm, I, That's did. an empty niche out there.
4: Yeah. You nope know, for
5: been. every every blow go and grow guy, whatever they are. Um, you know, there's. For every 10 of them, there's probably I don't know. We, we are. There's, <laughs> a my math yeah, but, yeah. There's, there's a lot. Yeah,
1: there's a lot we have a
5: tremendous need for the people that just want to hire somebody and they don't care what the plan is. they don't care if it's native or not. They just want you to do it and make it look nice. those are those are the richards that we need
2: yeah and yeah. i'll even I'll even chime in on his question a little bit. and what I've found is you have to make it relatable to them. and I guess you a good salesperson in in any yeah, any whatever you're selling, whether it's widgets or landscaping, whatever. You're going to find what the person's interested in. You're actually going to do more listening than you're going to do talking. You're not necessarily Mm -hmm, selling. mm -hmm. So when I've had conversations with people and we'll start talking about native plants, I kind of just play off what they've already told me about themselves and what they're interested in. And it could be even they could be interested in scuba diving. Well, there's a way to make native plants applicable to that because native plants help clean the water and that water even if it's up in upstate New York and then it's flowing all the way down through the Susquehanna into the Chesapeake Bay and not that you're going to scuba diving off off the coast of Maryland but it helps clean the water um it was just finding what applicable to them and then make it so this is where the benefit is it's if they don't care about birds they don't care about insects you're not going to sell them on birds and insects right right
5: but you know what they do care about they care about what their neighbors think yes Yes. yep yes so you have you have to make sure that they're still going to fit in with the cultural Mm -hmm. values of their neighborhood you've got to use the cues for care um you're just going to say i'm going to replace this tree from china with this tree from from uh you know your county and you won't know the difference but uh, it's going to allow a chickadee to breed in your yard. Otherwise, you got nothing. Yeah. Who's going to yeah. object to that?
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I was going to add to what both of you had said. If if you're knowledgeable and passionate, you should be able to break down any concerns or questions mm-hmm. that your client has. So, I, I think just which which he is. Yeah, is, he, he totally yeah. is. So so as long as you're you're knowledgeable and and uh, passionate about what you do in a, in a good way, not overwhelming. You know, and, and like Tom said, you read your customer. I I think, I I think it should flow. If if there wasn't a need for it, you wouldn't be in business doing what you do. Okay. So that's.
5: <laughs> well, the the other thing is, you know, be successful at it, and and get your slideshow with all your fabulous l- landscapes that you've created, and show it to them. Say this this is what I can do for you that sells you know people say "Ooh, okay i'll do that
1: oh totally totally so we we just want to i guess wrap this up we always end with one one important question
2: (laughs) and 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 you got to really choose wisely here because a lot of people are going to go and buy this and plant yes (laughs) this is
1: probably the most impactful time that we we've asked this question is what your favorite native plant is
5: yeah. You, you, people already know what I'm going to say. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say the white oak just because it does so many, so many things. But I will qualify that and say, my interests change day to day based on what it is that I just learned. So I just learned two days ago, you know, I've wondered all my life, what is pollinating witch hazel? You, say, you, hear, you can read, oh, flies. And I look on there, I don't see any flies. Every once in a while, a serpent comes by, but uh, we'll make a long story short. It turns out it's these this group of winter moths called the sallows. I've got the bicolored sallow at my house, and it's flying all over the place. And I finally say, okay, that's what's pollinating my witch hazel. <laughs> and I got pictures of it yeah. last night before the storm came through. So during that brief period, witch hazel was my favorite plant because it's going to provide <laughs> pollen for the... <laughs> For the bicolored sallow, so yeah, it I, changes.
1: I, I think for all of us, it depends on what, what you're dealing with at that present moment Is your new favorite. It's, exactly. It's, it's easy exactly. to get, get passionate about, about a native uh, plant that you see performing its natural function right in mm-hmm. front of you, so that's yeah. always wonderful. So, uh, but,
5: but you're not going to have the bicolored sallow unless you have the red maples that make them so that they can pollinate mm-hmm. the witch hazel.
1: There you go. It's, <laughs> very, very, very true. So, you know, just to be cognizant of your time, we're we're kind of going to end it there. We always offer a final thought. So, just a way to wrap up if if there's anything you want to promote or or just summarize or add anything, the floor is yours to say whatever you want um and it's it's all yours.
5: Okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to end it by promoting the idea in nature's best hope, and that is you are nature's best hope. You meaning everybody. You know, if we decide to do the things that that we've talked about, um, then there is a hope for nature. And whether or not we decide to do them is going to determine nature's fate, and it's going to ultimately determine our own fate. Uh, that's the message that's hard enough to hard to get across. People don't they don't see themselves as an important part of conservation, but they are. They are. So that's my message. You do count, and you can make a difference. I know that's a cliche, but this time it's real. You really can
1: awesome thank you tom you want to go or you want me to go
5: yeah i
2: i have a, a quick one okay and that's we just mentioned to rich the, about how you have to be a salesman well everyone listening to this is a salesman for native plants we all know and recognize how important they are so we have to sell it to our neighbors and uh, and get them on board and get them on the map um and you're not gonna do that by saying, Oh, you're so stupid if you don't plant native <laughs> plants. You're gonna do it by kind of, of course, find out what the, Yeah, <laughs> find out what they're interested in and don't don't belittle them. Find out what they're interested in and then pitch it in a way that's gonna be attractive to them.
1: And and we see that not being yeah. done in a lot of these native plant groups that we we yeah. talk about all the time yeah. where you have people that are interested and you can educate them and instead yeah. You know, there's people that meet it with sarcasm and uh, push people yeah. away. You,
2: and it's you'll be surprised by maybe what actually pushes them over the For like for me, other than working in a native plant nursery, it's it's plain and simple. It's I feel guilty if I'm not planting as many plants around my garden as possible because I'm like, if I if it's grass, it's not good for anything. Yeah. If it's yeah. A, a non-native, it's not good for really anything. Still, but it's very limited or very little. Yeah well, I have access to all these plants. Why wouldn't I plant this? And maybe it doesn't look like my neighbor's landscape, but it's a, I know it's a lot better, and yeah. I feel guilty if I don't make that choice. So yeah. there's a lot of different ways that people are going to be impassioned to go and do yeah. this.
1: If, if you plant it, you'll see the change. And and I think my final thought is very similar uh, to yours, Tom, is that everyone here that's probably listening right now, we're, you know, you're know you the choir. You, you've read the books. You heard the talk. You listened to us. You're on board. That group's not big enough to take this to the next step. So let's throw down the gauntlet. Let's be a be a good sales rep. Bring in one person. Have someone listen to this that that maybe um, maybe isn't on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, buy someone a plant. Buy someone a native plant yeah. to plant in their yard, just so they can see and experience what you experience.
2: Yeah. That's a great idea for when you're when we're able to start visiting again. And, and I'm sure that's going to be a big thing in the next year or two when we're able to go and visit friends. Um, on a regular basis bring a plant with you. Uh, they're not yeah, that good. expensive. Housewarming yeah, present. Bring it as yeah. a housewarming present. Say, "Hey, I haven't seen you in a while, here's a plant." That, it's that, a great gift. That circle has to get bigger. It's yeah.
1: it's not enough with what we have. We we need a bigger circle. So so try to bring someone into that circle, answer answer a question, try to be a little more kind or polite when when someone has questions that maybe we think you know seems silly mm-hmm. uh but we we need everyone to be on board to to take this to the next level and i think this book is a wonderful example yeah. of of taking it yeah. to the next level
2: all so right I well that wraps a- it up so thank you for joining us today we hope you enjoy listening to Doc doug Talmy. make sure if you haven't purchased or even go to the library i'm sure you can get it at the library too. and if
1: they if the library doesn't have yeah. it buy them a yeah. copy um make sure you <laughs> yeah. you read
2: nature or bring nature's home and nature's best hope make sure you go on oh, i don't want to screw up the website <laughs> on you know, uh, homegrownnationalpark.com i want to make sure it wasn't right. dot org right. or dot something so yeah. homegrownnationalpark. .com get on that map even if you don't have any natives yet pledge that you're going to start planting natives and that'll make a big difference going forward
1: if everyone just planted one if everyone just it one yeah. think of the difference that would make yep.
2: so thank you everyone for listening to native plants healthy planet presented by Pylons nursery
1: I would love to give a big thank you to Stephen Marr for contributing to uh, our theme music to us. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and also YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, don't forget the question and answer line. we got a few more calls that we'll cover on the next episode of The Buzz. You can call us at 215-346-6189. I'll say it one more time, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. If we pick your uh, question or comment, we'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz and answer it. And let's not forget, we still have the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Tons of new followers just uh, this past weekend, uh, which is fantastic. Keep the conversation going there.
2: You can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out on Apple Podcast, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, make sure when you listen, leave a five star review. We got a couple more, we which is it. awesome. We we love it when we get the five star reviews. Yeah, thank you. Everyone. Uh, it really just is a little bump that that motivates us to to keep doing these. Yes, yes. So, um, you can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast.
1: Thanks again, everyone. I'm Tom and I am Fran, uh, Doctor Tellamy, Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate. You're it. welcome. Uh, you guys are doing great work. Oh, uh, thank you, and and thank you to everyone for tuning in. We'll see you again next time. Until then, keep it native.